I think a lot of times when someone goes viral or a movement goes viral or whatever, people think that it's sort of like the lightning strikes. But you do need to sort of stack the sticks up, pour the petrol over, pray for the thunder gods to come, you know. Like, there's a lot of... Uh, it may not... You never know what's going to go viral, but you want to help it as much as possible. time to draw up your battle plans, assemble your team and set sail on the seas of social media. This is your practical guide to starting the movements that change the world. I'm Rich Brophy and this is How to Start a Riot. What's up Riot Squad? Welcome to the show. Uh, today we're looking at a social media movement and unpicking the nuts and bolts behind it, which I think is going to be super interesting. Um, we know that movements explode when they tap into people's kind of underlying or unspoken values and give people the chance to express them. We kind of saw that when Trump gave a voice to Americans who felt hard done by by politicians and the state of economics. Uh, more recently, we saw the kind of the quiet hunger that Hong Kong students had for independence unlocked by the chance to take a stand against a symbolic change in legislation. Um, and for today's topic, uh, we're talking about something kind of similar that happened in Australia in 2013, a visual and viral movement swept the internet. Uh, it was a public protest, a show of solidarity and an act of defiance. Uh, DIY Rainbow was a kind of simple act that was taken up around the world, featuring in pretty much every kind of media and social channel going. And it all started just around the corner from where I'm sitting today in a little back laneway in Surrey Hills, Sydney. Uh, and it was started by my guest today, Mr. James Breckney. Brecko, how are you G'day, Rich. Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, great, mate. Excellent. Thanks for coming <laughs> on the show. No problem. Uh, it's been a while since uh, we've heard about this movement, but I'm really yeah. excited today to kind of unpack it, to ask you the questions of kind of how it all fitted together, how it came to be, what went wrong, what sure. didn't. And, um, it's always lovely going down memory lane. Yeah, it so is. let's do it. Well, hopefully this is a positive <laughs> journey, mate. It is. Um, <laughs> Breko, do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I um, was born in Sydney. My parents are primary school teachers, grew up on the northern beaches, and I've been in the city now for 15 years doing uh, um, a jack-of-all-trades, a bunch of whole different stuff, social media, hosting trivia nights, um, a lot of activism as well. So, yeah, that's sort of my, my shtick. Yeah, great. And um, can you tell us kind of in a sentence or two, what is or what was DIY Rainbow? DIY Rainbow at the time was just a very quick reaction to the state government ripping up the Sydney Rainbow Crossing on Oxford Street. They said it for safety reasons they pulled it up, but it was also a um, conservative state government at the time and people weren't completely convinced of that. So I chalked a rainbow as a joke behind my terrace in Surrey Hills and then all of a sudden people started chalking them up all over Australia and eventually all over the world. That's a pretty amazing experience <laughs> to have, it's right? Very cool, yeah. Um, tell us about, like, what was that like seeing something that you had done on such a local scale blow out like that? Yeah, it, oh, it was a dream come true. Uh, it was just phenomenal. I think in the first sort of day, uh, my post was just going really, really viral. And then all of a sudden I had a few sort of influencers um, do their own and then it really went ballistic and all over Sydney. I remember the first Friday night I was walking home from a pub and I'd crossed like honestly in Surrey Hills like six rainbow crossings to get back to my house. So it was so phenomenal. And then Western Sydney and then interstate and then I started getting a few in Hawaii and you know <laughs> London, Germany. How so amazing. random. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. Um, and 
I guess this is probably a good place to start. Was yeah. What was the intent when you first did it? Oh, look, you know, I, I'd say the virality of it wasn't unintentional. I was doing a lot of stuff around men. I was doing a lot of stupid ideas that I thought would go viral that didn't. So I was just in Can the, you give in us an example of some of those? I had like, I remember back then I had like Finger Friday. So I tried to get everyone to take a photo of their finger on Friday and post it onto Facebook. And I know that sounds really stupid now. <laughs> no, but cool. back in 2013, when I went viral, um, you couldn't even post a photo on Twitter. They didn't even have that as an ability, right? And I think Instagram wasn't even invented yet or it was not, you know, it was nothing. Yeah. So having just being able to share photos on Facebook to like, the, you know, the, the common man as opposed to Flickr or some more photography-based sort of service, um, it was a cool thing. So I was, I was experimenting with the new features that were coming through. Uh, that's interesting. So yeah. you were kind of testing and learning yeah, as you sure. went. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, right. For sure. And... Um, and so when this particular one happened, I definitely didn't necessarily think people were going to copy it, but I definitely wanted it to go viral for sure. Okay. And so when you talk about going viral, what does that yeah. mean? <laughs> well, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. <laughs> if you're a bit of a loser and you're only getting two likes on a post, you know, if you get 20 likes, you've gone viral, haven't you? So it's all, um, it's all relative. Um, in this particular instance, this was just... This was very, very cool from a, from a social activist point of view because not only was it going viral in, online but people were chalking rainbows on street corners and on roads and it was physically um, being mimicked in the real world as well. And also it's a group activity so people are meeting other people and they're doing it together. So I just really loved that aspect of it whereas, you know, quite often virality can just be purely online only from yep. the living room. And so what do you think... But each of those things, what do you think the real world manifestation of it did for the movement? What do you think the impact of doing something real was? Well, the really interesting thing with it was is that the, the, the movement was a, was a reaction to the removal of the rainbow crossing and I had already been a little bit active about trying to stop them from removing it but no one really believed that it was necessarily going to happen and it happened in the dead of night. So what was really sad and also really interesting was that this big movement was really a protest around the fact that they removed it. There's no way the government was going to spend another $50,000 to reinstate it, you know. So it quickly, I quickly turned it around into just LGBTI rights generally. Um, but the cool thing at the time when it was really hot and it was more about chalking rainbows on the street, that was really about starting conversations with people around homophobia, um, homosexuality, LGBTI rights with, with a lot of allies and people that, you know, there was a lot of straight people that got involved and did it and just thought the whole thing was a bit ridiculous and, yeah, it was very cool. And a lot of kids got involved too, you know. Yeah. I think that's – let's just talk about what you said. I think that's interesting that you were kind of looking at this rainbow crosswalk already, you know. You are yeah. playing in this space. Yeah. And so it wasn't so much that, you know, you said, oh, I kind of did it for a joke, right? But there was – Sure. Like, so I, I think this so happens a lot. a vested interest, right? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of times when someone goes viral or a movement goes viral or whatever, people think that it's sort of like the lightning strikes. But you do need to sort of stack the sticks up, pour the petrol over, pray for the thunder gods to come, you know. <laughs> like there's a lot of uh, – it may not – you never know what's going to go viral but you want to help it as much as possible. So. And so what had you done when it was, ju when it was still the official – Rainbow sidewalk. Well, so for example, I think on my personal Facebook page, not only did I have a great network of allies and, and influencers in Sydney, but I also had a great 
um, gay network of, of, of gay influencers in Sydney. Um, I was covering the Rainbow Crossing and its potential removal on my community radio show a lot. We did a bit of a live cross to a mate when it was getting torn up. I was completely across the issue, I suppose. I knew yeah. everything about it. Um, which really helped later on for media interviews and all that sort of stuff. But also when I did just – it was just like an afternoon and I chalked a rainbow. I thought it was hilarious behind my house. Um, when that did happen, I was already in the, the community network of people that were really upset about it. So then it just helped spread it like, you know, 100%. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. At the time I thought it was all a little bit – at the time you think – um, consciously that it's just, oh, this has just magically happened. But when you look back on it, you go, oh, maybe a guy, you know, a few suburbs out who had nothing to do with anything, maybe he wouldn't have gone viral in the same way, you know? Yeah, and you realised all the work you put in the years before, how it all sort of leads to that point. It's really interesting, isn't it? We yeah. like to think that everything's magic and happens in an <laughs> yeah. instant, but a lot, lot of graft behind the, it. Totally, absolutely. There's actually an interesting idea in um, in the kind of theory of movements that sometimes you need to provoke authorities and then when they take kind of, I guess, really intense or heavy-handed action, that's the thing that actually mobilises people. For it's, sure. It's very not so sadly. much the cause, but, <laughs> well, people need something to push against, yeah. right? It was a very obvious to me that it was going to get removed and it's just a sad thing with humans that it's when they see the big cranes, come, the tractors coming in and ripping up the tar, that's when everyone gets upset as opposed to the week before when maybe it could have been saved, you know. So, But nonetheless, my movement was pretty cool and the page built up to about 75,000 people and we still post daily now and just mainly share LGBT news and all that sort of stuff. So tell me about... Because obviously, you know, the Rainbow Crossing was... It was quite a symbolic yeah. thing to have, right? Yeah. So it was already kind of a symbol of LGBT community. Well, funnily enough, what you've got to remember, in 2013 there was one rainbow crossing in West Hollywood and that was it and Sydney was like the second city in the world to get one. So now they're actually quite commonplace and they pop up all the time for pride festivals and things and there's quite a few permanent ones, like particularly in Europe everywhere. Um, but, but back then Sydney was really trailblazing thanks to the city of Sydney. Um, and so that's why it was quite um, sometimes an easy decision for the state government to get rid of it and also why it was really disappointing for the LGBTI community that they did. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. So, and I think I was also writing, you're right, about rainbows. Um, you know, actually around 2010, 2013, I would say that rainbows were quite naff in the gay community. It was like an old 70s flag. Like it wasn't, it's really had a resurgence big time like pride festivals weren't they had rainbow flags and all that sort of stuff but it's ne it's last 10 years has been next level and i think in, it's sort of going out of fashion now too so the, the pink triangle's coming back in a big way at the moment <laughs> yeah okay yeah. that's so that's <laughs> really funny. it's really interesting though to think about you know there was an action taken by the council there was yeah. obviously you in that time in that place in that suburb being yeah. connected to that community that's it and then the kind of symbolism being kind of on trend or on its way up. Yeah, it's like a like, nexus. Yeah, totally. And it creates something quite powerful. And, and I guess you don't, you can't really You can't plan control that a lot stuff, of it. Right? No, yeah. no. All you can do is be the best you can with, with what you control, you know, and just hope for the best. So yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in, mm. um, you know, you put, this, you put this photo up, like a bit of a mm. joke, still a statement on what's happened because I remember seeing the photo. Yeah. And it was like... It was pretty low rent, wasn't it? It was <laughs> yeah. a couple of dudes yeah. in a back lane with chalk and a big cheesy <laughs> smile. 
Um, my German backpacker housemates who were straight, by the way. Yeah. And they, they actually ended up in a magazine in Germany and their parents had to give them a call and <laughs> find out what was going on. Fantastic. With their sexuality. <laughs> um, tell me about watching that movement grow and what did you do? What was your role as it kind of started to play out? Yeah. Um, well, luckily at the time I, I was just had a sales job um, so I had, I had time to dedicate to it and it was just – in the very first instance, there was a bit of um, hijacking a little bit from some other people as well. So it wasn't very clear – it was clear to me and all my friends who sort of started it but just nailing down the social media accounts and, and you know, just owning, owning the movement a little bit was a part of a challenge. So at what point did you go, all right, we need to get a Facebook page, a Twitter handle? When someone website. else took the YouTube channel. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, so they sort of took DIY Rainbow as their YouTube channel and I was like, oh, like, because I had the Facebook page and maybe a Twitter. Um, so and there was you'd, a, a had little you bit started of that. that? beforehand uh no so when my photo went viral a couple of people reached out to me and said you should start a page and i was like it's a bit of an overreaction like the photo's got lots of likes and shares and it's a news story for a day but so because uh, the copycat sort of rainbow crossings didn't really happen for like 48 72 hours yeah okay and then it, and then it built so i started the page a couple of days after yeah right yeah and so what kind of what kind of information did you need? Did you need a vision or a point of view or a statement on that page? No, it was all like photo based. So basically people would do a chalk rainbow, they take a photo, they post it onto the page wall and then I'd post it as the page. And like the first weekend, um, it was just like photos coming in every 10 minutes. And were people telling stories with these photos? Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and how they met their neighbours for the first time, all, all that sort of stuff, you know. So yeah. it was very, very um, good feel, positive social media. Um, that's something that we didn't touch on that I wanted to talk about before. Yeah. The group dynamic like, or the group element of that, how did that impact the movement, do you think? Um, it was just a beautiful aspect of it, you know. So I think we also ended up doing at like, rallies for marriage rights and stuff doing a chalk rainbow at the end we actually redid the, the oxford street crossing in chalk at one of the rallies so thousands of people and we had like hundreds of sticks of chalk and like just repainted it in chalk <laughs> so good so dusty um, and it just gives something some people something to do at a rally <laughs> well i mean even you know? even at and home right yeah it's almost, like what's really interesting about it well it wasn't engineered that way yeah these things are quite large scale and quite labour intensive. Yeah, for sure. It's almost like if you had your time again. <laughs> yeah. If you thought, I'm going to make this, yeah, I'm going to make yeah. this viral. All right, I'm going to yeah. change the way I yeah. do it. But do you it's know, interesting the way it bakes it in. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing is um, if you just up the photos by 10% in colour, the, the chalk just looks amazing on the floor. And I think that was another <laughs> thing with the movement as well is like chalk's quite commonplace again now, but, but there was a bit of a lull there. Like I don't think it was – I just found some in a $2 shop, but – I wasn't seeing – there wasn't a lot of graffiti vandalism in the, in the chalk sense, like there probably is more today. So it was just one of those things. These things all come in cycles, hey, so you just ride the w different waves. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I know you turned <laughs> turned it into a drink at one point as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah totally, totally. Zuper duper ice cocktail. Yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> um, all right, so you – the photo started to come up. Yeah. You claimed the Facebook page, the Twitter handle, people were telling their stories. Were you being selective about the photos and stories you were sharing? 
not really. A few of my friends said I was posting too much, but um, they were wrong. I just kept <laughs> – we got like 10,000 likes in the first week, 20,000 I think within 20 days and it just kept going from there. Very, very cool. Um, you do get a little bit of uh, rainbow crossing fatigue. So sometimes maybe as the weeks went by, some of the rainbow crossings coming in were a bit, you know, a bit crap. And so you just sort of share what you think is going to, you know, keep the movement going. Um, but and so how do you – how we, tell me about something that you kind of sat on the fence with and decided actually that's worth doing versus not. Well, for example, there was one – one came from like Nigeria but they didn't really have any chalk. So they had like – I think they had like five sticks of chalk. So it was a big road. So it was just like five lines on the road and you couldn't really make it out on the photo. But how cool it's coming from Nigeria. Yeah, so right. like of course you post it. Yeah. Um, but then there's some people, particularly friends, who did some local ones like – two weeks after it's gone viral in Sydney and it's just like a little rainbow on a footpath and you're like, oh, this isn't really going to like get any traction or do anything, so, you know. So how, <laughs> how important is it to give people that sense of um, or show them the momentum versus just repeating the same kind of oh, stuff? Oh, yeah, for sure. Look, strategically in the very beginning when it really started going viral, I had a mate on holidays in Hawaii and I had a friend in London um, and I definitely got them to do a chalk rainbow in that second week to sort of um, enthuse the locals in Sydney and then in Australia that like, oh, this is getting bigger than, than it actually is sort of a thing to encourage them. And it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once that happened, I got one in Hawaii, got one in London. And then these ones naturally just started coming in from like Thailand and Germany and all different places. So, yeah, right. Yeah. How do you feel about like... Pulling the strings. Manipulating. Yeah. <laughs> Fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> Fine with it at the time. Yeah. Um, and also it wasn't Is that like because you have no morals or because you <laughs> believed so strongly in what you were doing? Well, it's also because um, the my girlfriend in London was my cousin and she was really, really into it. And my friend Jeremy was on holidays in Hawaii and he loved it as well. So it wasn't like I was paying people to do something they didn't want it, like turning up to a Trump con- like, you know, rally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it was just like super handy though international because it just adds that prestige to the movement. Yeah. Yeah. So I was totally morally fine with it. Yeah. I mean, I guess. <laughs> but I didn't post, hey, here's my best friend in Hawaii doing one. It was like, oh, we've got one in Honolulu. Well, Bad. I suppose that's really part of <laughs> your role if you're, um, I mean, not really leading a movement but orchestrating it or. It de- yeah, I was definitely. Facilitating it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was definitely giving it its best shot. Yeah. At the time. And I think, um, you know, it was for a great cause and we were really creating some amazing awareness about LGBT rights in Australia and elsewhere. We had chalk rainbows come in from Singapore and the guy actually painted um, a cubicle toilet rainbow because – was it Singapore? I think so. Because it was – or maybe it was Malaysia because it was illegal to really do it on the street. And yeah, it won't okay. be known. So – there were some really interesting stories coming in and also from Russia as well. We got some very private ones in houses and stuff because of the stories. But then you've got um, a whole group of women in a, in a sort of a um, domestic, victims of domestic violence house in, um, in the States do one, but they all turned around so they couldn't be identified and had a beautiful um, refuge um, for kids with HIV in Cambodia. They all did one on their basketball court. There was some amazing stuff coming through. It was very, very cool. And so what, I mean, in my work, a lot of what I see is 
you have a thing, you create a thing, but mm. that's actually a discussion tool yeah. for everyone. So how does how does that, whatever, the rainbow crossing, how does that actually create conversation? Because I think it's very G-rated and family-friendly and then you can have a conversation about homophobia that can be as deep or as shallow as you need it to be for the circumstance that you're in. So maybe... It's a stepping stone. I had UNESCO contact me, um, the UN body, and they developed like a pri- like a uh, primary schools program in Bangkok, where all the kids on a, on Rainbow Day would go and chalk a rainbow in their school, and then they'd have a little conversation about you know treating people with respect and homophobia and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's just incredible, and I think that's exactly what it really was in the end. It was people in Surrey Hills or in Western Sydney chalking a rainbow, having a discussion about how silly it was the government got rid of the official rainbow crossing and how, you know, in Australia we should all have a, a fair go and, you know, it doesn't really matter what people do in their bedrooms. Yeah, right. So I think that was the – nutting it down, that was the really exciting thing about it. Yeah. Which, you know me, Rich, a little bit off-brand for me. Like Normally at that particular point in time in particular – I was very outrageous. I was, you know, doing fancy dress parties, getting up to all sorts of mischief. So it was a bit of a 180 for me just to bring it down a little bit and to and to make the movement as successful as possible. Um, to, to be in that sort of G-rated lane was a little bit foreign to me, but I loved it. And um, how did you feel about other people kind of taking what you'd done and evolving it in their own way? I was, I was totally fine with people doing whatever they wanted to do. I just knew in the very, very early days, like in the first month or two, just to make sure that I had ownership of the, of the page and that people just knew that I was the one that started it. That's all. Because I had seen, I, you know... Why is that important? I think, oh, well, looking back on it now, I've had an amazing life because of the page and I could easily see when anything goes... This was pretty big. This we had Channel Seven at the house. We had Channel Nine at the house. Um, I, um, you can see how it'd be very attractive for some people to sort of hijack the movement a little bit, and mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then you don't necessarily get the complete benefit, or or you can't guide the movement in the way that you think it should. And I felt the responsibility that I should be the guy that gets to guide it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Something that I quite liked was seeing. Like, I, because I came and chalked up a few at some of your yeah, events, yeah. right? But what I quite like seeing was coming across them in different places. Yeah. You don't know who'd done it, yeah. but the fact that there's people here who are open minded and progressive yeah. and believe in this, yeah. whether they're gay or not, I yeah. think it's still, it's really interesting to kind of, you get that kind of sense of solidarity and. Uh, bloody awesome, mate. We had some rainbows come in from Castle, Maine and regional Australia, and you can see like the, the city town and they've got a little. And really, at the end of the day, even though it's a rainbow, it is like the gay flag. And you see like the gay flag imprinted on roads, you know, all across um, places where you don't normally suspect. They, they were the coolest ones for sure. Yeah. And really cool. And you can imagine being like a young, confused, you know, gay kid in one of these towns and to see some of that going on, I think it, it's pretty cool. It makes you feel like, oh, you know, people, you know, people are changing their opinions and having an open mind, lots yeah. of stuff. Or yeah. at least one person here <laughs> yeah. believes enough yeah, well, in my looks, lifestyle to buy chalk. Other one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you provide any kind of instructions or rules or guidelines for people out in the I, world? I got into a little... So as it got bigger, I had a meeting with... Um, 
a few people um, that were in PR and in politics who had been very supportive of the movement at the beginning and then it just got so big. Everyone was really super worried that a kid was going to get hit by a car on a street. Um, so there was a lot of safety issues and like people wanted me to cancel it or take it off road and that was sort of not really the point of the movement so I had to be quite strong but I definitely had um, graphic designers and stuff and we put together some cool safety graphics like particularly when it was quite hot and it was happening every day just every night on the page just to be wary of cars and look after each other and choose quiet roads all that sort of stuff yeah okay so it's like gentle guidelines yeah yeah Yeah, for sure Mm. Um, eventually we did a few little um like a year later we had an anniversary day and we i sold chalk if people wanted it and we shipped it out to you know and all that sort of stuff but i mean what what's what do you want with your instructions you know get some chalk go (laughs) yeah pretty much how did you you feel going from i guess the enabler or facilitator to almost you know this position where you needed to be responsible as well how did you deal with that shift yeah sure um it was okay like um i you just have to compromise so i think the safety message was a great way to do it i would have felt terrible if someone got hit by a car you know um and because I had been warned by a few people, maybe I would have been blamed, but luckily nothing happened. So I was very, very lucky in that way. But also I think I was right. I don't think it was as bad as people thought it was. And I thought the whole thing was a bit ridiculous that we can all chalk on a road, but now that it's getting popular, we've got to stop the kids from doing it, you know? Yeah. So, mm. Were there any... Um, actually, let's talk about this. Uh, so we were talking before about how it started to grow. Yeah. When did the news crews start coming into the house? Yeah, that was like probably 10 days later, yeah. So at that point... And did you contact them or did they contact you? No, no, they all contacted me, which was a first. (laughs) 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 Um, And I was very good to give it a good show, you know. So I took days off work and I made sure when the crews came I had a bunch... My sister was luckily working at a backpackers around the corner so I had access to young kids... Um, who weren't doing anything in the daytime. Yeah, right. So they'd rock up and we'd have 20 people doing a, a chalk rainbow in, in the backyard, you know. Yeah, they okay. They got good footage and everyone was happy. So that was a really incredible time. Very cool. People actually talk about that a lot. Like what are the assets around us that we already have yeah. that we can use to make this thing? Yeah, for sure. I had the, um, the project called me and they wanted to come up from Melbourne and they wanted me to tell them in four days' time where all the chalk rainbows would be in Surrey Hills. And I was like, well, the movement's like three weeks old at this point. And I'm also like, I can't tell you if anyone's going to do what or where they're going to be or, you know. Yeah. So that didn't happen. So how did, so oh, so they didn't come up? They didn't come up. I think uh, and that's what a lot of people don't realise with mainstream media. I think mainstream media is so important to your online, you know, it just they interact with each other and it provides it that legitimacy well, again, right? yeah. just like the international chalkings. Um but people don't realise that, you know, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of work. So even when Channel 9 and 7 contacted me, you've still got to be available, usually in business hours, and you've got to be able to command a group of 20 people so it visually looks good. And they're not helping you or providing any funds, of course, or anything like that. So it's a real... Um, you've, really, you've really got to be dedicated to the cause if, if you want that kind of exposure. So that's a lot of investment from you, right? In terms of time, effort, energy, probably money as well. For sure. That's a lot of chalk. For sure. So how do you... 
but and I lost he, five kilos during it as oh, well. Oh, fantastic. I was so stressed <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. I need you? another movement. <laughs> <laughs> you need a couple, mate. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you balance those different worlds? Because... Obviously, for you to go to your boss at work and say, yeah. I need time off because I'm yeah. starting a social movement. For sure. Hold on, what's social media? Yeah. What's a movement? What's yeah, LGBT? Yeah, yeah. Look, I was 29 going on 21 at that point. So I had a pretty um, pretty cruisy sales job and I was able to, to do that. But again, it's a little bit like what we said before about, oh, it was an all an accident and this is an amazing thing that happens to somebody you structure your life that way because you want that accident to happen, you know? So I was definitely just, I was just ready for it at that particular point in time. I was also 29, sort of that Saturn's return. I've been trying to do all these weird things over like four years and like nothing had really taken. What are you talking about? You know about? what I mean? No. Do you know what Saturn's return is? No. That's just like very, um, I'm not a spiritual guy, but like I think um, uh, Saturn, some Saturn, the planet returns in your life um, when you're about 28. And so there's a lot of books around people having amazing things happen to them when they're 28. Sort of they come full circle into adulthood. So I was a little ah, late. It was yeah, 29 right. for me. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was ready for it. But yeah, it was exhausting. It was expensive. Um, and again, that's why you ask, well, why did you want to have ownership of the movement? Well, you're investing all this time and energy into it. You want to be able to see it, um, see it go long term, which, which it really has. So just I'm just quite keen to know, you know, mm. if someone listening is starting a movement, right? Yeah. What do they say to their boss to go, <laughs> look, I need tomorrow off because <laughs> Channel 9 might be coming to my house to see me do something? Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I just had annual leave and I just had to, I just took some and just explained the situation and um, I was pretty headstrong back then so it wasn't really like... <laughs> It wasn't, wasn't a request. Like, no, it wasn't <laughs> a request. So, and I knew I could do that. But not everyone, like I've been in a recent position where I didn't have a job like that um, and I knew that. And so uh, when you have more responsibility and all that, so it, it becomes a very difficult proposition. For the media, they expect a lot and they expect to give you a call and they want to be there in two hours or they want to be there tomorrow. And, you know, it's all about the exposure. So you've got to balance it up. But I think a lot of people miss out on it. Because... Because of that. Oh, yeah. because they're restricted in their lifestyle. Hard. Yeah. Also, if you've got a movement, just because I have um, a chalk rainbow movement and people are chalking rainbows everywhere, that doesn't mean I'm necessarily the kind of guy that can conjure up 10 people to come over in two hours or tomorrow during the day to mimic one for them. Luckily, yeah. at the time I was, but, you know, tough. How did you feel about the media taking your story? Because obviously you'd put a lot of effort, put a lot of time. Yeah. You know, you'd been a bit of a LGBT advocate in the past. Yeah. And so then when they come in and go, local man just chalks up a rainbow and world goes crazy. How did you feel yeah. about them owning the story oh, in I loved that way? it. Loved it. It's so good to be. Again, mainstream just adds that legitimacy to the thing. It's incredible. And also, to be fair, going back in time to 2013, um, because of this movement, I ended up on the board of Mardi Gras. I ended up doing a lot of marriage equality work. But really, back then, I wasn't a huge LGB. I was out. Everyone knew I was out. I had opinions on Facebook and stuff, but I wasn't a huge activist in that sense. This sort of got me to fall into it. So I was super happy with, with coverage for sure. So you didn't mind that they were telling you, your story yeah. in this and particular And again, way? it wasn't like I created an MA or R-rated sort of thing that they were sort of toning down for television. It was already sort of very G-rated and they were just – all the um, – the coverage of it was very honest and very cool and just summed it all up very neatly and was fantastic. 
Yeah, okay. And I guess that's... We were talking before about being the facilitator. You're almost the chief storyteller as well, aren't <laughs> yeah. you? you, know? you totally. You, you have to control that narrative. We spoke to um, some of the kids who organised the climate strike in the last yep. episode yep. and they were saying you need a message, you need to yeah. go to the media and tell them exactly what they <laughs> need to write because yeah. otherwise they can go crazy. You know, sometimes, I don't know, I've always been of the ilk, like sometimes you have to sort of... Um, it's very cool if you've got nothing to hide just to be yourself and then let them tell the message because I think uh, we had one reporter from Channel 7 who hated it, thought that um, it was very dangerous and she kept doing a lot of um, reporting around the safety issues of it in the Channel 7 coverage but the competing journalists that came and interviewed me, I was in a fabulous sequence jacket <laughs> talking yeah. about community. We had all these people in fur coats and things behind me chalking rainbows and the visuals were just so much better. And I think the editing sort of sh- made us shine over the top of her. So if, you've, if, you, if your message is true and real and you believe in it, you've got nothing to lose to just be yourself and be natural. And I think that really sells a lot better across the airwaves than trying to be a, a politician, robotic sort of, you know, on message, da-da-da. I think as well, though, there's two elements there. There's you being authentic but also making sure that when you tell your story, yeah. when you explain yourself. Give it the best shot. Totally. Yeah. Like yeah. I think it's easy to think, well, this is the real story, so this is what gonna, people are going to tell. But yeah. if someone's got a less interesting story but an That's amazing it. visual, That's it's it. like that could win, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, definitely I suppose your background, understanding showbiz a bit. Yeah. You know, you understand that these are the elements that are going to really bring this to life. For sure. And I'd been on... Um, sunrise before with something else and i'd been on australian idol and a few things so i'd done a lot of contestant side reality tv sort of stuff so i sort of really knew how it rolled and i think it really helped yeah yeah did you have uh, a team for this or is this a one-man show i had a lot of people when it was very hot and very viral there was a lot of graphic designers that wanted to help certain brands wanted to jump in which probably didn't fit very well so i didn't do that how Um, did you deal with those kind of offers coming in yeah i mean on on the face of it you say yes to everything but we had one sort of marketing agency that wanted to let people chalk rainbow their website and they built like a little app that would do that but it was tracking all the traffic coming in and coming out and it was a bit sort of dodgy you know what i mean and it was very corporate and at the time it just wasn't suitable um how do you make that decision like because that's quite a yeah that's a philosophical debate that you would have to have with yourself on the fly and make the decision yeah for sure for sure is this what you were doing like kind of building your principles on the fly um yeah i think i already had pretty strong principles around the role of like entertainment versus advertising activism versus advertising all that sort of stuff um look i was pretty poor at the time i think money would have like changed my decision making but a lot of these brands were just wanting to lean in on it and not not give me anything or give or make a donation to some organization or anything like that um so more than happy like there was heaps of brands like iconic and stuff that came over to the house borrowed some chalk and their staff did a rainbow crossing in the street and that, all that was cool it was more just like if brands wanted to sponsor or be you know more deeply involved which probably wasn't that appropriate but we didn't get too many offers so it wasn't too hard to yeah. I like that's quite quite interesting that <laughs> yeah. the way for brands to be involved was through the 
you know, the same means that everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and I think for like someone like the Iconic, they had heaps of chalk, they have a huge laneway behind them and they made a really cool one. And of course we shared it and did really well. So awesome. What, um, obviously that's a lot, a lot of people, a lot of discussion, a lot of investment of time, right? Mm. This is not a small thing that people do. It's kind of a big statement. What was the, did you have like the next level of interaction or engagement for them? Was there something that you said, all right, once you chalked a rainbow, now start a support group or donate money to this cause or do something like this? Did you give people a kind of roadmap of engagement? No. Um, at, at that particular point in time, I was totally stretched out and I probably could have done better with, with a team, but it is hard on a volunteer basis to get people to, to work. Um, what I – my game plan with, with the page, we're at this point, you know, six months in, we're at 40,000 people on the page and it's highly interactive. So it was more about sharing um, LGBTI news and sharing activist uh, fun, whimsical activism um, happening across the globe on there to those people as well. I think if I looked at um, – we're at about – what are we now, like six years later? And we've sort of plateaued at around 78,000 followers, right? Um, and if you have a look at at the time, um, the big gay news networks in Sydney, like SX and Star Observer and stuff, um, same, same. I forget the numbers, but say I was at like 40,000 Facebook followers and Star Observer, which has been running for 40 years in Sydney, is on 15,000 followers, right? So all of a sudden... Not only do I have like the true believers and the gay community, but I have all these people that are just sort of waking up a little bit. Yeah, so it's okay. about educating them through the page was, yeah. the, was the focus. And I think that's the right thing to do. Um, why would you want to waste hours like following up with corporates trying to get something, you know, it's, it was more about educating the individuals who'd followed the page around what are the issues now happening in Australia around gay rights and, and across the world. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it was... Basically, an awareness campaign. Yeah, that still running today. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Still post every day. And um, I'll, I'll tell you what was funny was the the decline of the page. So once once the virality sort of finished, a year later, I didn't really know what to do, and um, I did a pop up gallery on Oxford Street of all the photos in this gallery for a week, and that was really fun, and it was quite cathartic for me because. I love like when things are booming and going nuts, but the day-to-day producing and sharing and trying to keep it alive is like, you know, that can be quite draining. So doing something like that was really, really cool. But again, there was no real purpose to it. I mean, I spent all this money, took a week off work, uh, got all these photos of the wall. Luckily, the Lord Mayor came down and gave a speech. Um, so that was very cool. And then all of a sudden, this is a year later, Facebook's um, editing department, in fact, they had a an area I don't think it exists anymore called Facebook Stories and they did the best 10 pages of Facebook like ever for their 10-year anniversary and it's like I get this email it's Humans of New York all these massive pages and then a few random stories like these twins that met each other from two um, two different countries through a Facebook page and then DIY Rainbow because I think Australia had such high saturation levels, so they were looking for an Aussie page. Yeah. And they hadn't ticked the gay box yet either. So it was like <laughs> perfect. So then I had this second wave where Facebook um, announced us as one of the 10 best pages on Facebook. And the following, um, I think in 2014, 2015, they flew me across to chalk a rainbow 
um, in like Zuckerberg Square there in, in Silicon Valley. Is it really called Zuckerberg no. Square? No. Okay, <laughs> I did see him. Um, and, then, uh, and then we sort of marched, uh, I marched with them um, in, in San Francisco Pride. So it sort of gave it a second wind. Very cool. Yeah, okay. And, and so in between, because obviously you're at, that's out of your control. Yeah. What about those lulls in between? What kind of advice have you got for people? Well, are, well, I think that's my, is my advice. So the lull was definitely I'll get there. a top page on Facebook. No, no, no. Do, uh, I think like, so for example, it wasn't completely out of my control from in the end. Um, the, one of the girls who worked in the editing department at Facebook Stories did a sabbatical in Australia for a couple of years and she was here when it went viral and... Um, a couple of her friends, I think... Oh, sorry. A couple of her friends went to the pop-up gallery. So even though it was dying, I still did that one-year pop-up gallery thing, got the Lord Mayor in to give a speech. You, you keep going. You keep thinking of new things to do. Um, and, then, and then it sort of turned around there for a bit, which was incredible. A second wind, which, you know, is very rare. And how important is it to... Um, I suppose, do things that, you know, look at the cause and the actions and think how do I go deeper on this versus what are the things that energise me and how can I develop it in that direction instead? Well, they're not mutually exclusive. So I think I sort of sit down and I go, okay, what do I want to achieve and and what's a good outcome here? Um, So during the plebiscite, for example, we had um, a, a, a woman up in Queensland whose windows had gotten sort of smashed because she put some rainbow flags up. And so even though I can't have another viral movement necessarily, now I've got 80,000 people on the page, we can do fundraisers super quick. So yeah, within right. two hours, she's got new windows, you know, raised and, and a dinner for her and a girlfriend, all that sort of stuff. So, that's so nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah. so that's like the power. So you sort of, the, the, as the page matures, you just have to realise, okay, I don't have, I'm not, I'm not 29 and I can't maybe have a viral movement every three minutes, you know. But what can I do now with 80,000 people? That's pretty interesting, you know. So helping out with rallies, um, letting people know things, that's, that's really what it's become. Yeah, okay. And is the community, are you fueling it or are they still interacting? Um, it's still a very interactive page. We get comments and likes are pretty for, for that number of people. It's a very interactive page, but like all Facebook pages, the the admin is driving you know the conversation of the day, the post of the day. I think that's where pages have really evolved into. Um, we've started a group as well, which is about a thousand people. Um, What's the difference between a page and a group? Well, the, the group, I feel like people can be more collaborative. They can post news stories and the algorithm sort of is more friendly towards them for sharing stuff. Whereas if you post something to a page, no one sees it. If, you, if, if an individual posts something to a page they're not an admin of, it just sort of goes into that other wall and, and no one really sees what's going on other than their friends. Yeah, okay. Whereas the focus on groups has been more um, everyone posts and it's more of like an even playing field. Uh, we talked before about the, how all these different forces and factors came together at once. Um, understanding, I guess, like social algorithms, how important is that to gaining traction? Do you need to plan for it? Do you need to understand it? Uh, I think you need to understand it. It's very hard. You can't control it. And the algorithms, both Google and Facebook, are very secretive and you don't really know how they work and it's hard to game them. And even once someone does work out how to game them, the, the game changes, doesn't it? Yeah. So you just got to be aware of it enough to go, well, I'm not going to waste my time doing this if you're not going to get anything out of it, you know. So I was very lucky. Photos in 2013 were 
um, relatively new on Facebook and the algorithm was super open and letting people post and things were going naturally viral. Things don't go – it's very hard to go super viral now. I looked at um, – do you remember the Chewbacca girl at all? The Chewbacca lady was in the States and she went viral and, what, and then Facebook flew her to Facebook, you know. Um, but her thing was she was doing a live video and so – that was a new feature a couple of years ago on Facebook. And so the algorithm was super open to live videos and that's why she went viral, you know. If she'd posted a photo or a pre-recorded video, it wouldn't have done the same at all. So I always look for new features are amazing because the algorithm always favours new features. So, you know, I'm always aware of that. Um, so you've got to be aware of these things mm. but you can't be totally driven by them either. Yeah, I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, you need to understand what is going to resonate with the humans that are using this. For sure. And then... The, yeah, it's still got to be good content, doesn't it? Yeah. People always say to, say to me, like, oh, why isn't this doing well? I'm like, well, it's actually also, like, a bit shit. Like, you know, like, I wouldn't share it. So, it's got to be it's got to be killer content. But then, you know, if the algorithm can favour it, it, world's your oyster. How did you... Because um, I suppose... The beauty of a social platform is it spreads to so many places quite quickly if it's, yeah. you know, yeah. if it's working. Yeah. Um, obviously that means we talked before about connecting with uh, other brands, other people. What about other um, activist movements or other groups that were kind of in the same space? Did you collaborate with them? Did you connect with them? Did you have issues with them? Um, yeah, not at all. I mean, um, so a lot of groups would chalk a rainbow and then they'd post their photo and all that sort of stuff. Um, I would do speeches for certain groups and just telling my story about what happened to me and how maybe it could happen for them. They do certain things. Um, but I've always been a bit of a one-man band and I love, I love flexibility. I found in the activist space... Um, when you're working with 20 people in a, in a, in a, in a group, sometimes the, the compromise position, the compromise decision isn't going to be the most effective for um, an online movement. So, and that's a real conundrum of... We think, we think of social media as such um, nearly socialist things where there's all these people getting together. But behind the scenes, it's actually quite an authoritarian sort of pyramid you know like there's one admin at the top <laughs> yeah and they're very good at what they do the the, the, the cohort sort of goes with them and, and and makes a movement so the upside is it takes a very small team to create something incredible um the downside is um love the idea of like lots of people working together on something but the actual production and, and drivers i tend to find smaller teams are better and so how do you think this is a speculative question. Yeah. But do you think that um, just working on your own potentially limited the movement at all? Um, no. I think that uh, you just don't know, do you? It is speculative. Um, I think to say honestly, Rich, at, 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 you know, from a basic chalk rainbow photo to go to um, 80,000 people on a page to be named top 10 in Facebook and get flown over there. Um, I ended up coming back here and I got on the board of Mardi Gras and Facebook Australia sponsored Mardi Gras, quite a lot of money. Um, and that was all because of my US relationships. Um, uh, I couldn't. If someone told me in that first week when it went viral, like, hey, you've got to work with a big team to achieve all of that, I'd go, okay, cool, Where, where's the team? I'll do whatever they say. Like, yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. outcomes 
from what I achieved as, as an individual. Yeah. yeah, cool. All right, well, maybe that's a terrible question to ask. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's, it's, it's a great question and it's something that I really struggled with. One, I didn't have any money so I couldn't pay anybody to help. So if people wanted to help, they had to do it off their own bat. And I think the really tough thing is to post news every day is quite um, a big chore, particularly when, it's, when you're in those lulls where it's not like a news story, it's not exciting, you're just, you know, driving the pages like a social community manager. But I suppose that's when, you know, the community aspect is so strong and having those community roots to begin with probably gives you that strength in the time to... Yeah, I, I think that the, for my particular position, like the community roots is all the comments, all the shares, all the likes. I know what, uh, you know, you get used to like what post does well, what post doesn't do well, what people want to talk about. And I also know I'm in a really good position to know politically... We, like right now, we need to be talking about the religious exemption laws like non-stop. We need to be talking about Israel Falu and all that sort of stuff. And so you have to drive you have to drive it in the right direction as well to educate people. Yeah, okay. So it's not just enough to go, this is our cause and yeah. almost reinvent it. You gotta <laughs> it's almost like jumping on the rocks across the river, right? You need well, to I'm just like a, a custodian guardian, you know what I mean? I just gotta make the right decision for everybody and, and post in the right way to make sure that um, you know, good outcomes are happening in Australia and uh, across Asia Pacific, just doing my little part. What's the point in having a big movement if you give the keys to the castle to twenty people and they're all just posting random stuff, you know? I, yeah, I think okay. it I think it dilutes it. Uh, I'm interested, just a couple more questions. Yeah. One is, were there any stories that stood out for you that you can share little things that really struck you at the time? Yeah, um, well, I mentioned it before, but there's a beautiful photo of um, this in Cambodia of this refuge of all these orphans who are all living with HIV. And, when the, and they chalked a rainbow up in lunchtime on their basketball court um, and to see, like, 30 kids who are orphans, you know, who are living with a, with a condition, um, that was... I sort of broke out into tears then when I saw that one. That was definitely, like, um, very powerful. And I was like, wow, like... Because it's very foreign to me. Like, I, I'm born and bred in Sydney, and then you're seeing images coming in from, like, somewhere, like, as remote Cambodia, you know? Fantastic. Um, and hopefully making like a one iota of a difference to kids for three minutes of their day. Do you know, like, very cool, very yeah. cool. Uh, and then locally in Australia, for me, the biggest ones was the regional, the regional towns and things. So we'd have, like, um, two lesbian mums and, and their kids and they'd go chalk a rainbow on the street and all the neighbours are out looking and taking a photo together. And you just know the kind of conversations that they're happening um, there and thinking, wow, that's pretty. It's a pretty cool thing. The power of um, the chalk rainbow. <laughs> so good, so yeah. good. What yeah. is, this is a life affirming podcast. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think the impact of DIY Rainbow has been on the world? Um, I, I think it, you know one of the very cool things about our minority, or my minority, <laughs> the LGBTQI community, is that. Unlike a lot of other minorities, um, I guess we've got a lot of, actually a lot of in common with maybe um, the disabled community. Unlike, you know, in Australia, other minor most minorities, your parents are the minority 
that you're in as well, so you can relate to your family um, and maybe even relate to the geographical area that you live in. Um, whereas the gay community, it's sort of 10% of the population spread all over Australia and you don't really know where it's going to pop up or not. And I think that was part of the virality of the movement. So all of a sudden, you know, if it was some ethnic group doing some viral thing, maybe it would all be in one, you know, zone of, uh, of Western Sydney or, or, you know, or the Northern Beaches or whatever. But because we're spread all throughout Australia, it maybe came across a lot bigger than it maybe even was because it's 10% of the population speckled everywhere, you know. And I think um, for, for LGBT activists um, in Sydney and Australia that was sort of a part of part of that movement with me in 2013 gave a real sort of um, example of what could be achieved nationally and I think um, working with a few of those activists like their dreams and visions of maybe what's possible with say actions during come six years later to the plebiscite um, well we could get everyone to decorate their letterbox or we could get everyone to do this or do that and I think it definitely was the first big um, online viral happiness campaign for the gay community that I've seen and sort of opened their minds to the possibilities of how big something could get. Great. That's a great point to finish on, Thanks, I think. Uh, thank you very much, James. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, it's been great. I'm sure that there's plenty of stuff for it's cool. people to pick through and take from. Look, it's, it's changed my life, mate, and it's given me so many personal opportunities and it's also just been so lovely to see everything come through. So... It's always fabulous to go down memory lane and talk, <laughs> talk about it. Cool. <laughs> All right. Thanks for your time, mate. Thanks a lot, mate. Okay, that's our show for today, guys. Uh, loads of great lessons to learn about that kind of social media activism. It's, I think it's been really interesting to think about what you perceive as a sort of simple, easy viral movement and I guess the reality behind it. Hopefully there's plenty that you can take away and apply to your movement. Uh, if not, I hope you were intrigued by what you heard. I'm going to put a link to the DIY Rainbow Facebook page in the show notes so you can check it out and see a bit more about uh, what you've been listening to. I'll also have a link to our Slack channel where you can ask some more questions, debate some stuff you've heard, whatever you like. That's it from me today. If you have liked this episode or know someone who would, please do share it through whatever social media channels you're currently using. Yeah, that's it. We're donezos. Uh, I've been Rich Brophy and this has been How to Start a Riot.